0: Welcome to Black Fashion History, the podcast that celebrates the contributions of Black people to the fashion industry. It's Black History, but make it fashion. And I'm your host, Taniqua Martin. Welcome back, Black Fashion History family. Welcome back to another episode of your favorite podcast ever. Before we get into today's episode, a couple of housekeeping things. Well, really just one. If you've been a long-time listener, you know that when we started this podcast, we were weekly, rolling out every Thursday, and then somewhere down the line, it stopped being so weekly. Well, that has finally become official. Black Fashion History is officially a bi-weekly podcast. I know it's been kind of bi-weekly for a while, but I just... You know, came to terms with it, committed myself to just being bi weekly and pushing out episodes twice a month, but putting all of my power and research and knowledge behind those two episodes a month to make sure that you are getting everything you need. And, you know, I'm meeting your expectations. So you're not expecting it to come out every week, but you are expecting greatness, you know, the two times a month that it comes out. And so thank you all for rocking with me. And now we have it officially on the books that we are a biweekly podcast. Another thing to know is that we will be coming out on Mondays now instead of Thursdays. Thursdays. I had to make a quick adjustment because of my schedule. But again, the goal here is to be able to put all of my power behind the content that I am pushing out so that when it comes out, you all are excited. You're getting everything you need. You're getting the information that you look forward to, even if it's twice a month. And it's like, if we're going to be honest, it's been twice a month for a while, so it ain't nothing new. And if you want a little more Black Fashion History, you can always follow us on Instagram at Black Fashion History Podcast. That's always an option to get more regular content, more daily content. Well, Instagram content is more like on a weekly basis, but more weekly content of Black Fashion History so you don't miss a beat. Now that that is out of the way, it is now my chance to bring to you another black fashion designer that you may not have heard of, but you needed to know about. She is like the Afrocentric queen and mostly known for her Afrocentric and ethnic inspired bridal collections. If you haven't heard of her, I am so excited to be able to introduce you and share with you all of the wonderful things about Miss Therese Fleetwood. Therese Fleetwood is originally from Boston where she got her start in fashion and she started designing clothes at the age of 12 and sold her first dress on the famed Newbury Street at the age of 15 and she is from the same place in Boston as New Edition. She's from the home of New Edition so you know what she does is on point because stars are made there. Selling her first dress on Newberry Street at the age of 15 was quite a big deal because it's the same place where they sold Giorgio Armani, Chanel, Diane Von Furstenberg, and so many more top designer names. Therese Fleetwood then moved to New York when she was a little bit older to attend the Fashion Institute of Technology and study fashion design, of course. She worked as a production coordinator on 7th Avenue. And then she later launched her fashion career by designing Afrocentric attire under her label, Faizula Collection, where she sold to specialty boutiques throughout New York City and created custom designs for private clients and celebrities, including In Vogue, Vanessa Williams, Angela Bassett, Queen Latifah, Yolanda Adams, Kim Field. The list goes on and on and on. And she is mostly known, as I mentioned earlier, for her Afrocentric and ethnic inspired bridal. Her designs have been on display in the New York Gets Married and Black Style Now exhibits at the City Museum of New York and at the Fashion Institute of Technology in honor of the Black Fashion Museum in Harlem. And she was also a featured designer in Macy's Catch the Designers, which provided a behind the scenes look at diverse designers impacting fashion. During our conversation, you'll hear about some of the other really amazing things that Therese Fleetwood has done and the ways that she's contributed to fashion history overall. I'm not going to spoil it for you in the intro, but you definitely want to keep listening because she's done some really cool and unexpected things. Now let's get into it. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to do the interview. I know we had a little bit of back and forth, but I'm glad that we got a chance to connect and talk to each other.
1: Yes. And I really love what you're doing. I I think it's so important that we know who's out here in fashion because as, as Black designers, you know, we don't get a lot of profile, you know, of our work, a lot of profiling of our work. So I think this is really good. So thank you.
0: No, thank you. Absolutely. I mean, that is my main goal with this platform is to highlight people like you and let everyone know like who's out there and who's been out there, you know, making history for a while. So with that being said, can you just start us off by letting everyone know like where you're from and kind of what were some of your first experiences that got you interested in fashion to begin with?
1: Sure. Okay, my name is Therese Splitwood and I am from Roxbury, Massachusetts. And I started The Home of a New Edition. That- Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I met them several times. And my fashion career started really as a child. I think I was about 12 years old and I played a lot with Barbie dolls. I used to create garments for them, uh, have little fashion shows. I was very much into all the, the latest fashion magazines. One whole wall of my bedroom was like a a collage of just fashion and images and colors and textures. And I loved it. So, um, yes, I started very young with my hands in fashion. And my mother sent me to uh, learn how to sew at the age of about 12 or 13, because when she would go shopping for me, I would, um, always make her return the clothes, like make her meaning I'd have a little fit. I'm not going to wear this. This is not what I like. So she dragged me to the store and I would pick out garments that I really liked. Now, of course these garments were more mature, um, styles than what a 12 year old would wear. I was always, um, you know, very into texture and colors and certain things that I like and that I want it to be my self-expression.
0: So at the time though, did you think about it as, oh, this is something that when I grow up, I want to do, or were you just doing it for fun and doing it, you know, in order to wear what you liked?
1: It was, I had no idea that I would even get into fashion at that young age. For me, it was just, my self-expression, what I wanted to to wear, what I wanted to look like, what made me feel good. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because I really didn't think about becoming a fashion designer until one day I had this dream. I was about 15 years old. And at the time I didn't know what it meant, but all I remember was. the African drums and lots of colors and people were happy and it was a festive occasion and I remember in my dream and waking up feeling like oh my goodness I feel amazing like you know what is this energy passing through me but even at that time I really didn't know what that meant because that soon led me into my you know Afrocentric aesthetic but um I I really didn't. And I think it was when my mother sent me to design, um, to learn how to sew, she said, that's it. I'm not shopping for you anymore. I was forced to now to start to make my own garments, basically. And as I started designing and creating, I started to fall in love with the process. So that's kind of what got me into um, designing and, and loving the idea of designing and creating collections at a very young age.
0: So at what moment did you say, okay, I'm going to pursue this as a way of living?
1: That moment came to me, well, when I was around 15 or 16 years old, um, my parents were event promoters in, um, in Boston. And they used to promote these designer competitions. And I entered a couple of competitions and I really loved it. So it was at that time that I said, you know what, I'm going to enroll in FIT and really understand what fashion design is all about. So during my time at FIT and being in New York City around, you know, the fashion and, you know, being in the fashion capital, so to speak, is where I really started to say, you know what, this is fun. People are are liking my work. They want some of the designs that I'm creating. Let me like really look into this and, and what this could um, possibly be for me. So it was during, I would say, around 15 or 16 that I said, you know, this is something that I think that I could do. So that's, yeah, that's kind of how all all of that happened for me.
0: Okay. So you're known really on the design side for like bridal wear and like Afrocentric bridal wear. And before I reached out to you for this interview, I realized like growing up that I've been seeing your designs, but I didn't know like who they were, you know, <laughs> whatever, but I would see them in magazines and, you know, I see them now to this day, like when you Google black bride or something, you know, your designs would come up. So they've been a part of my life in a sense uh, for a while, but I didn't know it was you. So mm-hmm. did you start off doing bridal and if not how did you like go into that area of fashion?
1: Okay so let's see I did not start off doing bridal I actually okay how it all happened for me which really started to solidify me as a designer I was living in New York City up in Harlem and I there was an African um, store that sold a lot of fabrics and, and different um, you know sculptures and jewelry and different things from the continent. They opened up on the corner where I was living. And I walked in there one day and again, something about that dream was, was is, you know, was flowing through my energy. And I walked in and I said, I'm a designer and I can create garments for you out of the fabrics that you have here. So what he ended up doing was giving me about 140 yards of different African prints and said, OK, go for it. So I created you know, shirts and robes and pants and different items for him and, and his store and all the leftover fabrics, the little, you know, um, the little remnants that I really couldn't make these, these garments out of. I kept for myself. And I started to create bustier, you know, bustiers and dresses and little lingerie pieces or shorts mm-hmm. and little crop tops. So um, it was at that moment that as I was starting to create my Afrocentric collection, and this was ready to wear, this was not bridal at all. Um, So I got my start doing Afrocentric ready to wear and what happened as I got my collection together, I had a lot of friends, you know, we were in our twenties and we were all rocking and rolling in New York. And I had a few friends who were um, uh, PR assistants and in Vogue was, um, they had just uh, launched their group and they were doing a, an event for Mattel. Mattel had just launched um, a collection of three African-American Barbie dolls and they were having a kickoff party. So I was one of the designers at the kickoff party and In Vogue saw my work and they said, oh, my gosh, we want to wear this. To the grammys we're doing the grammys in three months we want to wear your clothes and let me tell you something they spent more money on their shoes at the time than they paid for my outfits. and because i didn't know <laughs> about really pricing and and how the business side of the industry worked mm-hmm. and you can see that video that's if you google in vogue at the grammys you can see them wearing uh, those garments as well so that's really kind of how i got into um you know the whole afrocentric aesthetic to what i do now um the how i switched into the wedding industry Harriet Cole, at the time, I believe she was an editor at Essence Magazine. She came out with Jumping the the Broom, which was the first African American wedding planner. And she asked me to design a dress for her book. I had never designed an Afrocentric wedding dress, but I was like, this is my aesthetic. Let me go for it. Yes, I designed this dress. And then I had to say, well, wait a minute. I can sell a $2,500 dress or a $75 blouse, a $2,500 <laughs> dress or a $75 blouse. So my business mindset you know, let me swing over here to the, to the bridal, you know, industry and see what that is all about. And also at the time there were not, it may, may have been a handful of designers who were creating Afrocentric bridal gowns. So that's how I got into the bridal industry. It was a nice little segue from my uh, Afrocentric ready to wear.
0: So I want to go back just a little bit. Mm-hmm. You talked about designing for In Vogue for mm-hmm. their parents at the Grammys was that sort of your first big break in a sense where your designs were going like mainstream beyond you know the store that you were working with and like people in the neighborhood or friends and family purchasing your pieces
1: absolutely so from after um working with In Vogue and having them appear and when they appeared on the Grammys wearing my my designs, um, I got a call from Monica Lynch, who was Queen Latifah's. Um, um, she was, I think, the PR person at Queen Latifah's record label at the time. So I worked with Queen Latifah. I designed a couple of um, items for her album covers. Um, I worked with Vanessa Williams. I worked with and and, and again all of these. It was. They saw Queen Latifah, then um, Vanessa's people reached out, then they saw Vanessa, then Yolanda Adams' people reached out. And then I worked with Sherry Headley, dressing her for the Emmys. I worked with Shanice. I started working with um, TV shows, um, providing clothes for a different world. And so, yeah, it's just one thing. It was like a snowball rolling down the hill, picking up more and more and more clients based off of um, them seeing other celebrities uh, wearing my garments.
0: So throughout that process, did you get a little more financially savvy with pricing (laughs) and all of that?
1: You know, it's interesting because at the time, my mother was a fashion publicist. So um, she did, she handled a lot of that side of the business for me in terms of getting me on TV, in terms of solidifying these clients, in terms of keeping my name, you know, out there and in in the press. So I was always operating very freely as an artist. I was Mm -hmm. about color and shape and fun and creativity. So I didn't really start to pick up on the business savvy aspect of all of this until my mother Moved to California and went in um, a different direction outside of PR. Now I was forced to say, hmm, what does all this look like? How do I do this? How do I structure this? You know, how do I, you know, reach out to um, get more clients? You know, even though at the time I was also. Starting to sell to stores, so in terms of pricing garments, you know, I was good at sales because I was I love what I do. I, I was good at talking about what I did. My garments basically spoke for themselves. So it was a process, really learning the business aspect of um, how to grow a business and how to price out garments accordingly. So it, it it's a process.
0: So what was your experience like selling to stores? I know I've spoken with designers that kind of were working around the same time that you were and they would mention that, you know, getting into stores was a little bit of a difficult process because they were a black designer and people not uh, being really people being interested in their clothing but not interested in the fact that a black designer was behind it. So did you run into any of those experiences?
1: Well, most of the stores that I sold to were Afrocentric or African type stores where they mm-hmm. sold these products already. So I was coming in basically with the same uh, design aesthetic of what they were carrying. So it wasn't that challenging for me. So I never really went after the Macy's or the J.C. Mm-hmm. Penneys and things like that. They were always small lots for me that may have been anywhere from, you know, one dozen to five dozen pieces at a time and working within the aesthetic of what I did.
0: Was that an intentional choice? Not going after, you know, some of the department stores or something like that? Because, I mean, your items were clearly very popular. You have like national recognition and, you know, celebrities were wearing it at the time. So it does make sense for someone thinking, oh, well, the next best step is to do like a nationwide department store or something like that.
1: Well, I can say this. I did, if I have one regret in my career, I remember there was a time that I was approached by two gentlemen from JCPenney who wanted to, um, they wanted to carry my collection in their store. But at the time, I really didn't have a business mentor to talk to about all of this. But all I remember is that they wanted like, 40 to 60% of my company. And for me at that time, I was like, well, that's too much money. I mean, they're asking for it for too much. And I really didn't seek out advice from somebody to to understand how this all worked. So that was that was a decision that I let go of. And it was picked up by another designer who just ran with it and just <laughs> blew up from it. And I would always sit back and say, If that opportunity was presented to me again, well, yeah, I mean, 50 percent of of something is better than 50 percent of nothing. So I would, of course, have looked at it differently. But I was young. I was like 20, 23 years old or something. And I just didn't know. So um, that was an opportunity. But I never really approached Big department stores. I just, for some reason, I really was content in doing, um, in having, you know, small lots and in, in private clients. That was mm-hmm. fine for me.
0: What are some of the, or one or two of the biggest challenges you faced in your career as a designer?
1: Let's see. Biggest challenges. I would say what's popping in my head first off was I started designing really before the internet really became big and popular. Um, and I remember I was talking to, to uh, um, a woman who had called about one of my wedding dresses. And we were going through, you know, the process and the changes and the colors that she wanted to make from the original design. And then I was like, okay, great. And, you know, the price of this dress is five thousand dollars. And she said, five thousand dollars. Wait, I'm looking at it here online. It says five hundred. I said, no, you know, you can't be. She said, no, I'm looking at it right here. It says five hundred. And somebody, a lot of times when I was creating wedding dresses, I would find and the Internet was coming into play. I would find a lot of my garments from my website on several um, websites from China or from Hong Kong saying Mm -hmm. we can do a version of this dress. So it got to the point that I couldn't compete with myself. It was like, okay, there's no way that I could ever create this $5,000 dress for $500. The materials alone cost more than that. So, yeah, it it got very frustrating. And it did cause me to take a step back for for many years and, and kind of reassess, like, is this still really what I want to do? So that was one challenge for me. And then I would say another challenge was probably the whole marketing and PR aspect of the business. Because I realize now that, you know, I was so busy doing everything myself that there were some things that that fell through the cracks. I'm I'm not good at everything. And, you know, I had to really say, Therese, you're not a a PR person. You're not a, a marketing person. You're good at sales and you're good at being creative. So I think had I learned that lesson sooner and hired the, the people that I needed who were skilled in those areas, I think that um, my business probably would have, would definitely would have um, thrived and flourished more as opposed to starting to dwindle down. I, I felt like I was just getting beat up, like all over the place. Like I just, I just didn't know what to do and I couldn't compete. And, and honestly, you know, I was... I was known for what I was doing. So I didn't want, I was afraid to to let people know that I was going through these times because you're Therese Fleetwood. You're doing this. People know you for this, but they never saw the sadness and the darkness of when things weren't going right.
0: It's so interesting because a lot of designers deal with that today. Uh, Both of the points that you brought up, like having to compete with, you know, wholesalers or factories in other countries that have their designs on the websites and now like fast fashion retailers like Fashion Nova, Shein or whomever, they're duplicating popular Mm -hmm. designs uh, from like different designers or black designers specifically. And they're having to compete with that and people saying, well, I can go to X, Y and Z place and get the same top or the same dress for significantly less. And also in this age of social media, I think it's the same fight that you have in that sometimes you get a level of popularity and everyone knows you and expects you to be at this certain place in your business. And on the back end, you know, things could be falling apart or you're still trying to figure out what to do and you're still trying to figure out how to like handle the business and where to hire people. And do you even have money to hire people? You know, those kinds of things. So I think what it's you should, yeah, it is. <laughs> it's absolutely real. And I think it it's only, it's starting to get a little bit better because there are more resources out there, but it's just a matter of, you know, people deciding, you know, to take advantage of those resources, ask for help. Yeah, uh, definitely. Yes, yeah, so I think that was great advice. Like ask for help if you need it and don't be embarrassed to ask for help.
1: Yeah, you have to because years later I remember talking to some people who, who could have easily helped me. And they said, "Teresa, but you never asked. <laughs> and I'm like, but well, I yeah, go on. All I had to do was ask. We would have helped you, but you look, you you seem like you had it all together. You mm-hmm. never asked. I was like, lesson learned. Thank you. <laughs>
0: Well, on the flip side of that, what would you say was one or two of your most rewarding moments in this industry?
1: Oh, my gosh. My most rewarding moments in this industry, there are um, probably two that really stick out for me. And number one would be, there is a series of books called The History of Fashion. They were published by Fairchild Publications. The, they call the Survey of Historic Costume, and my um, I have a photo that appears in three, no, four volumes of this book, and no, I'm sorry, three volumes. The first through the third editions. So, so part of, in my mind, I'm like, oh my gosh, I made history. These are books that fashion students read, you know, in, you know, studying fashion design or mm-hmm. fashion marketing or, or costuming, you know, I, I, I've made the book. So when I'm dead in the, in the dirt and my ashes <laughs> to ashes, I have made a mark and, and it's, it's in publication. And then the second thing is uh, when I worked with Disney, I was the only outside designer that Disney ever had come in and designed for Mickey and Minnie Mouse. I designed I did not their own. Yes, wow. the only they don't let outside designers come in. But I was the only one who um, designed kente cloth costumes for Mickey and Minnie Mouse. So if you ever see those, so those are two historic moments for me that I'm like, I have left my mark. I am good now. I'm, I'm not done, <laughs> but I am good. <laughs> So, yeah, so those are two things that really stick out for me. And then um, I did write my own book um, called um, The Afrocentric Bride, A Style Guide. And that I wrote about 15 years ago and um, so I'm pretty pleased about that as well.
0: Oh, those are amazing moments. I mean, one of the reasons why I started this show is that I was finding it difficult to find information about Black designers and Black professionals in fashion over the years because they're not always chronicled in the history books or things like that. So to know that, you know, that you've been spotlighted and that you're solidified in a history book that people can reference and will be referencing for years to come is amazing. And Fairchild (laughs) Publications is like, the the fashion Bible, in a sense. Yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. <laughs>
0: so that's great. I'd love to know, I know you did bridal wear and not just Afrocentric bridal wear, but I know you kind of took the cultural influences a little bit wider than that. And you designed things with like Indian influences or Asian influences. So I'd mm-hmm. love to know like what led you in that direction to go outside of You know, things that will be targeted specifically towards like a black bride or brides who are interested in more of the Afrocentric aesthetic.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting because as the more and more I worked with brides, I, I, I consider myself a world couture. Designer because I do incorporate Indian and Asian and, and ethnic influences, but the and African influences. But the more I worked with brides, they kind of helped lead me into different directions because I worked with many multicultural brides. I worked mm-hmm. with brides who said, you know, I would I'm, I'm I'm marrying an Asian man or I have Asian, you know, in my ancestry. Um, so I'd like to incorporate those elements or I just, and and with the Indian, um, fabrics and and designs, I just love the fabrics and the embroideries. And, um, that can also be pulled in, you know, to the Afrocentric direction as well, because if you look at a lot of fabrics in Africa, they're beautifully embroidered ones they they do have that Indian um, influence and to be honestly get real I mean you know Africa's birthplace of civilization black people have traveled to Asia black people have traveled to India and, and they're still there today so mm-hmm. culturally um as, as from the African diaspora we have made our marks all over the world. So a lot of those influences, they're kind of innate in our culture. And it's nice to be able to express them in my designs.
0: So I know that you're not just a designer, but you also, you served as a wedding planner for a period of time, if I'm not mistaken. And then you are, I don't know if this would be the correct term, but more like an intimacy expert. <laughs>
1: All right, I'll 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 say how all that came about. So, um, when I was creating um, Afrocentric wedding dresses, you know, in my mind, it's like the whole wedding has to have that vibe. You know, you just Mm -hmm. you can't have this beautiful Afrocentric dress and then have uh, you know a standard you know wedding venue design. You, it's like pull. Let's pull all of this this vibe and this energy from what you're wearing into the whole aesthetic of your entire wedding. So that's how I jumped into the wedding coordinating aspects of it, um, to make sure everything was cohesive and that it read beautifully. And, and people walk into an experience, you know. And when I was um, doing wedding coordinating, I would ask my clients, hey, listen, do you want me to make your hotel room, you know, more romantic? Do you want me to like, you know, because you walk into a honeymoon suite and it's like, okay, it's sweet. But yeah. let's walk in and let's give you more, like more to play with, more that still pulls in the aesthetic of your wedding and your vibe. And they most of them said, Yeah, let's do it. Let's go for it. So years later these, some of these same clients said, Therese, remember what you did for us on our honeymoon night? Can, well, our anniversary is coming. Um, Can we do something like that again? Now, also at that time, I was selling adult toys. I had an adult (laughs) toy company called Therese's Playhouse. And so I, I got to talk to a lot of women specifically about, their fantasies and what they wanted more their relationships. So my, when they asked me about their honeymoon, I said, well, let's kick this up a notch. What is your fantasy? So that's how the whole ro- romance concierge aspect of who I am came into play because, you know, one thing in relationships, They can get bored, they can get stale, they can, the excitement can wane. Mm -hmm. And it's nice to find ways where we can kick that kick that intimacy up, like really get together and plan for the next few years of our life and the guise of fun and play. So it was with that in the whole fantasy aspect of it in mind, because we all have them, but we don't really talk about them, which we should be. So I I just started to create um, those date nights for couples based around the fantasies that perhaps they never talked to their significant other or their spouse about.
0: So, did you find that to be like a difficult transition in that people accepting you in this new role when they're used to you being a designer?
1: Girl, yes. <laughs> As I tell you to this day, I, I post, when I post on social, because I'm also an author. I mean, I write, write books about Black men and, and women, and I'll, I'll quickly tell you about that. But when I post on social media, people are like, what is this? We <laughs> I may post something about my romance or my books, and I'll get like five likes. I may post something on, on my fashion. I get hundreds of likes, and I'm like, okay, how do I make this switch? How do they understand that this is also who I am? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So I realize it's just really uh, that's going to be a whole different group of people that I pull in with that because people respect me as a designer. And I love that. They just don't know all of who Therese Fleetwood really is.
0: Right. (laughs) And, you know, you have the freedom, everyone has the freedom to do as many things as they love as possible, you know? So you don't, you don't have to be pigeonholed into one thing just because you're a designer and have been that for a long time. And people know you as that, you know, you can explore all the parts and interests of yourself and make a career out of all of it.
1: Yes. And you know, Taniqua. I did say your name correctly, didn't I? Yes, you did. Okay, thank you. Okay. And here's the thing, Tamequa. My, my entire career, I've always catered to the African-American market, whether it's through my fashions, through the books that I, I write. Even the company was designed, you know, when I first started it, it was designed for Black love to really keep mm-hmm. that together. But the books that I write, I have two books out, Black Men in intimacy, voices from across the diaspora, and Black women in intimacy, voices from across the diaspora. Now, because I've worked with couples in the wedding industry, I love love. I am such an advocate for Black love that when I wrote these books, what I really wanted to do was chronicle our lives, Black love in the 21st century. Like, what does that look like intimately, emotionally, intellectually, and physically? So these books I write are also still within my design aesthetic, I guess I would say, Mm -hmm. in terms of really wanting Black people to express themselves through communication, through what they wear, through art, culturally. It's this whole beautiful Um, ball of self-expression of Black people and enhancing us as a people and really solidifying our love. Because the books that I I wrote, uh, these two books, I interviewed over 150 Black men and women asking them questions about love, relationships, sex, appreciation, the state of Black relationships across five generations of us, not just targeting one, one group of us, but five generations because I want somebody and what I did was just record them and take exactly what they said and put in the book. I didn't try to um, categorize them or stereotype them or, or make it make sense even really. It's just being a fly on the wall, listening to all these people speak. And the purpose of this book also, I want 50 years from now, a hundred years from now, people to say, well, wait a minute, look at what they were talking about back in 2022, you know, 2022. Like look at what the men were going through and look at what the women were going through. It's a great, it'll be a great historical reference because also I was, when I was tracing my family tree, I got the information about, you know, my ancestors and, and things like that in, in different generations but I did not hear their voice. What were they thinking? What did they talk about? What did my grandmother's love and my great grandmother's love really look like for them? So that's the reason why I wrote these books as well.
0: No, I love that. And I think it's much needed in the community whenever there's an opportunity to tell our stories. You know, whether those stories are of love or career or community, whatever they are. Whenever there's an opportunity to tell those stories and have them live on for generations to reference and see, you know what people thought, how they lived, it's great. So I love that you have all of that.
1: Thank you. So
0: I have one final question for you, and with all of the amazing things that you have done over the course of your career um, in fashion, in like wedding coordinating, in writing, in celebrating Black love. What is next for you? (laughs) What is next for me? Well, I still have
1: my hands in, in really in fashion and in black love. So with the fashion aspect, I, you know, I have really been out of fashion, probably designing, you know, a collection probably for about seven years. And, you know, something in my spirit kept saying, Therese, you know, I I still look at fabric and I still get excited. And and it's like, okay, how am I going to do this? What am I going to do? Like, what does this look like for me? So spirit brought to me, I've always loved the Moors, you know, the the Black Moors and what they wore and their strength. And really, if you understand the history of the Moors and what they stand for, the power that they had and the beauty. So I'm taking um, Indian sari, fabrics um and mixing them with the um African culture of the Moors and I'm creating unisex uh, coats for men and women and I'm oh. they're all like you know one of a kind very unique and uh, I'm really excited about that because the fabrics I'm playing with and working with are just absolutely gorgeous so that's one aspect and then with the romance concierge I'm um Opening it up for, because it, it it has been for so long a luxury service where the date nights was starting at $2,500, mm-hmm. but I get so many people who are like, we can't afford this. How can, you know, can you do this on a, on a, the, the same grandness and scale, but more affordable. So I'm working on tweaking that down so that it can reach more people.
0: And that's it, guys. Thanks again for tuning into another episode of Black Fashion History. If you loved what you heard, and I know you did, make sure to subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcasting platforms and on all social media at Black Fashion History Podcast. Don't forget to visit us online at our website, blackfashionhistory.com. And of course, if you don't do any of that stuff, Make sure to tune in again next week for another Black Fashion History installment. Bye-bye.